I have a lot of friends who know they have non-sellable businesses. They're very dependent on them the way it is. So, you know, to them, it's like, hey, can I get this to turn a million or two year in profit and do that for seven or eight years? And then that's that's how I get my nest egg. Welcome to the Prosperity Perspective by DML, a conversation about how successful business owners invest their hard-earned money to preserve their wealth and what they might have done differently in hindsight. Thank you for joining us today, guys. Today, we're joined by Robert Glazer, and I'm excited for him to share a little bit about his experience and background uh, as an entrepreneur and uh, some of the nuggets he's got for us today. So without further ado, Robert, uh, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Um, uh, As you said, my name is Robert Glazer. Uh, Go by Bob and other various pseudonyms. I uh, have, have founded a few businesses, uh, the largest of which is Acceleration Partners, um, which I'm still involved with today, which is a global uh, affiliate and partner uh, marketing firm. We have about 350 people uh, around the world uh, and work with large brands on scaling their digital partnership uh, programs. I also started getting into some writing and speaking in the last few years. I've written uh, five books, do some keynote speaking and talk about sort of our industry and a lot of the things we, we we really built our company around a very specific culture and some practices on how to sort of build by growing people. And so uh, I, I talk and write about those things and share them with uh, other businesses. So that's my, that's my night and weekend job. Very nice. How, uh, how did you get to that point? Did, were you always in kind of digital affiliate type marketing and, or it sounds like the writing piece is new, uh, kind of what took you to those, those. Places? Yeah, I was, I was always in consumer and customer acquisition, like, and, and realized early on that, like, it's not who has the best product or service. It's who figures out how to get customers most cost effectively for most businesses when they're scaling up and they don't have a name, right? Someone will say, oh, so-and-so does that. This part of the country, no one's ever heard of them. Well, then they might not have any business. So when I tuned into customer acquisition and sort of growth, I, I fell on this affiliate and partnership channel. I just felt like it was really the 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 best way to grow a business. And we leaned into that and look, timing and luck are, uh, we did this for a long time. And then suddenly the industry got really interested in it and, and, and the wind got behind the sails and that's where it is today. You know, ten years ago, no one understood what the hell we were doing, uh, and 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 today the the market's pretty popular. So uh, it does take being lucky, and sometimes you know, be, be, being resilient uh, while, while while the tide's going out, and then eventually you know it comes in. Very nice. Um, so the one question we like to start with with everyone is, you know, once you hit that point of profitability, right? Didn't have to worry about expenses. You had extra cash coming in that wasn't allocated for the business uh, directly. Uh, what was your strategic framework in terms of you know where to place the capital and uh, what was important for you? Yeah, so I'm not sure I was totally ever at that point. While the P&L might have looked good, if you're growing a business, if you're self-funding and a services business at 30 or 40% a year, like again, the amount of businesses, the reverse, you know, or, or, or not the reverse, that go under because their profitability is good, but their cash flow is not, right? It, it constantly required a lot of reinvestment. But um, I, I think that is the conundrum for many people in terms of, you know, some people can just generate a cash cow and they know it has no enterprise value. So they just want to, you know, you know, milk the golden goose because you can't sell the goose. When you're trying to build something that you may sell the goose or have uh, enterprise value, um, you know, usually that you can get more by reinvesting in your business than you can, you know, taking that money out and putting it somewhere else and getting, you know, 10, 
percent. I mean, if you're growing a business 30 or 40% of a year, your return on capital is a lot better than that. So, you know, it's this balance between you wake up one day too, and then you have 98% of your net worth, you know, in your business. So, you know, I've seen it go both ways. I, I think, you know, I try to focus on just diversification of, of, of assets, you know, outside the business, even, you know, I've done some things in, in real estate investments, but they all have different theses. Um, just, I, I think the history of investing in time shows you like, there's always winners and losers and things cycle through. Um, so I, I try to focus on different groups, different strategies, um, and, and have balanced that, but that is the conundrum for most people. And, and I think this is why it's, I think really important to be clear, you know, Stephen Covey start with the end in mind, because if you're hoping to sell your business, then you're probably better off reinvesting in your business, but you better make sure it's sellable. I have a lot of friends who know they have non-sellable businesses. They're very dependent on them the way it is. So, you know, to them, it's like, hey, can I get this to turn a million or two year in profit and do that for seven or eight years? And then that's that's how I get my nest egg. So I guess, what are some of the key questions that someone should ask themselves as they're going through to understand uh, if the business is sellable versus non-sellable, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I first think- is, do you want? Do you, would you want to sell the business? Because some people, their identity is very tied to the business. Um, I would say a really good test on is your business sellable today is what happens if you go on a sabbatical for two months? Like, are there no sales? Are there no deposits? Is there no customer service? Like, that's not really a sellable business. Um, so a sellable business is one where you could go away for three months and, you know, the business runs. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's how you have to uh, think about it, particularly people in the services world. So for someone who doesn't pass that uh, mustard test, right. Uh, but wants their business to be sellable, where do they start in your mind? What's the most important piece to be able to get from, you know, non-sellable to sellable for someone who wants to sell? I would start following one of the systems like Traction EOS or Gazelles, Vern Harnish Gazelles in terms of building scalability processes. I think there's two things, right? Building a management team and building repeatable processes are probably the two paths to make a business, you know, less about you. And, and also just make sure you're understanding what you want. Some people are very depressed when they sell their business. It's what they want to do. It's their life work otherwise. So figuring that out. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 the less that things are relying on you, it's, it's about documenting processes, creating systems, making it much less reliant on, on people. I think either of those systems are a great place to get started. So as we flip over to the other side, for someone who's got a sellable business and we're yeah. talking about reinvesting how do you think about how much to reinvest uh, into the company, right? Do you, uh, you do you pour everything? Do you pour a portion? Kind of, uh, you know, what's the thought process uh, there or tips that you would give on that side? Yeah, I, it all, I think it comes to your risk reward spectrum. Sometimes doubling down means making less profit. Sometimes doubling down means unprofitable, right? Obviously, the more your business is born, the more at risk it is. So it depends on the cushion that you have behind it. Uh, I always took out a, a pretty big home equity loan that I never used. You know, you never know when you might have a bad few months or quarters and and, and you need to be able to fund that. So I, I think those things go hand in hand. What's your security blanket? Are we talking about going from a lot of profitability to a little less profitability? We're going from talking profitability to unprofitability because you know, those, those can, you know, you run into something now like a recession or, you know, inflation, you know, you can, you can get caught in, in, in those cycles. So um, 
I, I think it depends, you know, it, the problem is the higher risk is higher reward, like anything in life. If your business has the potential to grow 50% a year, usually that 50%, again, you can be profitable, but it's hard to not chew up cash, right? You got to, you got to hire people. You got to pay ahead. You got to do stuff before you get paid. You sign bigger, bigger clients and they reliably play, pay every 90 days. So inevitably almost like the the more reward has the more risk. And so I always say like, like play these things out in both scenarios. Like how, how, how would you feel if it didn't double and how would you feel it ha- if it halved and which is, you know, which is the, 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 which is the greater uh, problem for you? So throughout your career, right, you've gone through several different companies. How has that uh, risk appetite changed for you, uh, you know, maybe in the first entity versus, uh, you know, some of your latest endeavors uh, in, you know, how you've approached it? Yeah, it, it did change. So, so you know, when it got to the point where, you know, one of my businesses was just a considerable portion of my wealth and I realized, you know, it was going to need a lot of cash and, and, and the team was excited about growing it. That's what we decided to partner with, you know, an investor or private equity thinking like, look, I, you know, at this point I'm, I've gotten to the point where, you know, going for the home run or striking out is not interesting. Like I'd rather hit doubles and triples, but the people on the team, you know, want to go for home runs. So we, we found a partner to sort of help support that. Um, so again, I think it's, if everyone is clear about what they want and why they want it, then you can, you can take strategies that help support that. So I think, you know, that was a great option for us was getting an investment partner who would fund that growth capital and, and could give the team the upside they were looking for without me having to decide to, you know, re- reinvest all that. Um, so, so, you know, that was a good decision. And then, you know, I, I, I generally think, you know, as you, when you have nothing to lose, uh, it's easier to double down as you start to have that uh, look, a lot of, a lot of financial advisors, you know, might advise, you know, particularly, you know, maybe six months ago, but not now. Look, take a thirty-year mortgage at three percent. Don't pay it off, you know. I, but, but, but I've heard talk to a lot of business owners who felt like, you know, when they had their kids' college saved for, when they paid off their house, when they had the car, when they actually felt like risk couldn't bring down their family, then they felt more comfortable taking risk. Everyone knows that you should borrow, not pay off. You should probably, any financial would say, take a big mortgage at two and a half percent and don't pay it down in advance. Right. But that's the correct investment advice in a bubble. But for some people, actually, I think it's, I think it's not, I, I know some people who have done that, or they've taken a little private equity and taken some money off the table and sort of put some money in the retirement, put some money and, 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 you know, paid off those things. And then they felt like much more comfortable Swinging, swinging for the fences, knowing that they weren't going to bring down their family with them. I think that's the, you know, that's the baseline. At, at what point does chasing upside really put, you know, your family and their financial health at risk? Do you think that's purely a personality trait that, uh, you know, drives that decision? Or does every entrepreneur kind of kind of reach that point at a different maturation of their business. I think it's I think it's personality. I think it's life stage. Obviously as a single 20-year-old person, I think you're just more inclined to keep, you know, doubling down and swinging for the fences. You know, you start to have kids, you start they start to, you know, college, they start to have stuff, you want, you know, house like then the 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 cost of of 
you know, when you're 20 is if you end up in your parents' basement, not a big deal. If you're married with kids and you end up in your parents' basement, like much, <laughs> much bigger deal. So I, I do think there's some personality. I think there's very different risk reward spectrums out there. There's different types of business. I do think some of it's life stage. Conversely, I actually think people come back to the risk proposition, you know, at, at maybe 40 or 50, I've seen. So kids are in college, like, you know, maybe the home is paid for at that point, you know, and they have a, oh, maybe this is the time to take a little more risk. But you definitely, you see people, not even entrepreneurs. I mean, I, you know, I see a lot of friends who just, you know, they get to that max earning potential of 40. They don't like their job, but they're really afraid, you know, it's taken a lot of years to get into that income stream and they're afraid to walk away from it or try something different or have to rebuild that up. So that tends to be a period where people are a little more safety focused, I think. So you'd mentioned uh, you're pretty diversified in a lot of different assets. You mentioned real estate and some other components. Did you follow that same kind of model in terms of, uh, you know, taking some risk off the table, starting to hedge, uh, diversifying on the personal? Uh, did you mirror that or what were the choices for you in terms of when you uh, started to put that in play? Um, yeah, I, we, we were able to sell one of our businesses, um, you know, last year and, and, and yeah, I started to diversify a little bit. I've always been in personal real estate. I like renovating things and we've been able to use that as, as, as an opportunity. I, I actually always, I, I like things where you try to create value. You try to take something, improve it, create value. But, but again, even across real estate, you know, I'm, I'm in some, uh, you know, things that focus on apartment buildings versus ones that focus on malls versus ones that focus on, you know, on distribution centers, like, like just different asset classes that aren't likely to, to, to be in lockstep with each other. Look, I think what the market's proven us now, a lot of things that people didn't think in lockstep with each other, like crypto and gold and the stock market kind of seem directly <laughs> cor correlated. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, it's a balance over time, but again, this is the trick. If you really have a business that's growing, it, again, it depends on whether you want to sell it, but you know, to pull your money out of your business and hope to get a seven or eight return percent return when you might be getting a 20 or 30% return on equity, illiquid return in your business each year. Like that's a, that's a interesting equation for a lot of people to look at. What's the most exciting thing that you're working on today that gets you excited when you get out of bed that's like, hey, I get to go tackle this today? Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work um, in some of my books. I've talked about figuring out your personal core values as a leadership strategy, as a personal development strategy, I think as a post-COVID great resignation strategy. Um, so I, uh, I created a course during COVID because people were asking me about the work that we did um, with our team and how we train people on that. And I've actually been able to get out and speaking with some companies and talking to them through this. I just worked with a huge organization that had a total breakdown in uh, sort of decorum uh, that was really values driven. And it was just, they really had never, they had these kind of Dilbert values like trust, respect, whatever, and they just weren't relevant at all. And, and, and getting a very skeptical group of people to understand that actually having core values that determine how they wanted people to behave, that what that looked like, how that could really change the organization. It's been really interesting to, to work on. When did that uh, kind of come into your journey? Uh, was that there from the beginning or was there a no, that came cathartic in, moment? Typically when everyone reads my bio and like 
books and it, like all of that was all after that moment of 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 a uh, 2013 an intensive uh five-day leadership program i went to really realizing that like as i had started to be a leader i was pulling a bunch of best practices together but they weren't necessarily authentically me and if i could if i could really understand my core values and and communicate those i could just lead differently. I could think about what should I double down on? What should I stop doing? So I started doing a lot of new things and I stopped doing a lot of things. I think a lot of us know our core values that they, 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 we know them by feel. We know them when they're violated, but we can't articulate them. And to me, that's the ultimate decision-making guy. Like if we were to say like, look at you, like here's a whole bunch of decisions and you're clear on your values. Like you will make great decisions. If you can't articulate them, I, you know, I, it's kind of like driving through the tunnel in the car with the lights off. Like you're going to hit the wall. You're going to hit the wall. You're going to get out of the tunnel. Car's just going to look pretty, pretty beat up. Um, I, Cause those, to me, the values are your, are your guardrails, like things that you should drive towards or, or, or people and, and situations and companies that you should stay away from. Can you give an example of one of those values or best practices that you had taken for someone else that just didn't resonate with where your values that you moved away from? Yeah, I can give you an example of why it matters like in leadership. So we've had a couple people who in our leadership development program at our company have identified, you know, core values that 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 they kind of knew by feel. But for example, so trust, like a trust is a core value. Um, normally, a core value tends to come from a very formative childhood experience, in my point. Most people are going for something they loved or dramatically against something that was traumatic in some way. And in most cases, trust people, it's a violation of trust earlier in their life that makes trust really important to them. Now, you can imagine a manager who has trust as a core value is really important to them. They might have never articulated this before, but someone on their team who's five minutes late to a meeting, who misses an assignment, who can't kind of be found you know, a few afternoons like remote working, that triggers very primal feelings of distrust in a person for whom that's a really deep thing. And they basically, and you can ask them this and they don't want to answer it, but when you, they basically have put these employees in a penalty box and they're not getting out. Well, it'd be really interesting if you could go back as a leader and, you know, did my team say, Hey, look, everyone, trust is really important to me. Like I, I trust you. I got your back, but things like telling me you're going to do it when you're going to do it, not showing up for the meeting, not be able to find you. Like th- 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 those for me are, are, are things that make it harder for me to, to trust you. And and just totally change the working relationship with their team. It, to me, it's like the ultimate personality test if you've taken all of these things. Like, so a lot of our leaders have gotten clarity on some of these things. They're like, oh wow, like I didn't realize how much this has been affecting a lot of things for me. And then they've gone and communicated that to their team and kind of let them know how to manage up to them. So it sounds like that core value and getting to clarity and being able to communicate that to others so that they know how to engage yeah. is where that true unlock is. One of my dominant core values is find a better way and share it. That is why I write these books as I do these things. It, you do not want to come work on my team if you're a let's do it how we've always done it person. I will exhaust you, drive you crazy. Like I, I'm just really honest with people. Like those, that's not my game. Like if you, if you want stability and process, or maybe you're a point in your career where you just want to do the same thing and you want to punch it in and punch it out. Like 
you, our culture being on my team, not if you're bored in your current job, you probably love coming and working on my team. Like, so, you know, I hired someone away two years ago and he was super bored and, and very intellectually curious. And I was like, you will never be bored a day in your life here. And he jokes around all the time that he has never been bored. Now, someone else might be like, I don't want to work for that guy. It's exhausting. Right. So that's to me, that's part of the sort of self-identification. It's a little bit to me like college and universities, right? It's not that they're good or bad. They all have fundamentally different value propositions, religious, non-religious, city, big, small, rural, liberal arts, business. Like the job, the goal is to find the one that that has, you know, you what you're looking for, the things that they offer. Um, you know, it someone would be really unhappy if they thought they were you know, applied to a large institution in the city, you know, and, and then found out they were going to a small liberal arts school in the country. Like, it's just not, you know, that's what happens with a lot of companies and leaders when, you know, they recite these bullshit values and stuff that aren't, don't actually reflect what it's like, <laughs> what their organization values. I mean, Enron's values were like integrity, honesty, and respect. <laughs> How you got promoted at Enron was you cheated, lied, and stabbed people in the back. Like they would have been better off saying like, this is actually what we value at Enron. How have you over your career, right? So knowing that that's your personality type, but knowing that at a certain point, the business reaches a maturation point where you just need someone who's very process oriented and like does the same thing, can do it repetitively to drive it forward. How have you balanced that and kind of recognize that in your team? I I fired myself as CEO last year. So I I promoted my president to CEO. And I said, the business is at the organization where I'm the R&D department. You know, it's smaller. Like, I'm going to go work on this stuff and work on Because if I try to mess with everyone's stuff day to day, I'm going to drive them nuts. Like, yes, we have 350 people now. It's a global business. Like, we need to... We need to run it, maintain it, do the daily calls, do the repetitive stuff that is, does not give me energy. So I gave myself permission to carve out a different role and 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 let the best, better person for the job take on that role. Had you done that before through your other companies, or was that kind of the first big like? Hey, um, this, this is the company I've operated. The other companies, some of them I I helped start and then step out of. So someone else was in that role. And I think going forward, I, I would know that as a general rule. Like I'm kind of the executive producer, right? I can get the idea, get the money, get the team, get the stuff together. But then I will always have a general manager or someone who, you know, wakes up and wants to focus on the nuts and bolts of that, you know, initiative in that day. As we're nearing the end of time here, what's uh, what's one thing that you'd want to leave with the audience as they're you know, thinking about how to think about their business, they're coming into more profitability, they're coming into more growth. Uh, you know, uh, what's something that's been you know, impactful, meaningful for, for you that you would say, uh, here's a good nugget for you guys to dive into? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing for me is is two things. One is, and I mentioned both of them, but, but understand your values because that is, you got to, you want to do things in line with them, not around them. So if you're trying to figure out what to do, that often will really help you decide, right? If one of your values is to always push the envelope, then you might be on that reinvestment path and not the, you know, take the distribution path. I think the second thing, and Stephen Covey said this once, but, but as I said before, start with the end in mind. Like what what does good look like in five or 10 years? Um, because I think to me, goal setting is a whole process of knocking over little dominoes towards a big domino. So, you know, thinking about if you want to be working in five or 10 years, or you want to be the CEO of that business, you want to be doing everything every day. That's very different than if you said, I want to be out of this business and it's sold in five years. It would require a totally different strategy and execution book. So 
again, I think the values often help you figure out what is the right endpoint because you don't want an endpoint that's misaligned with their values. I've seen many people spend a lot of work and energy to climb a mountain and they're like, at the top, they're like, crap, I climbed the wrong mountain, <laughs> right? So uh, I, I, I find values and, and clear goals, um, um, you know, and then it's easy to work back into those. Like, here's what I should be doing if this is where I want to be. That's great. And uh, definitely done that on hikes, right? Where you get up to the top and you're like, oh, crap, I want to be over there. Uh, yeah. I'm just in the wrong spot. But uh, for the listeners who want to connect back with you, Bob, what's the best place? Uh, how do they connect with you? Yeah, books, courses, podcasts, everything is at uh, Robert Glazer, G L A Z E R uh, dot com. Excellent. Appreciate the time and uh, look forward to connecting and staying in touch. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today on the Prosperity Perspective. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, please head over to theprosperityperspective.com where you can hear from other successful business owners on their approach to investments. On our website, you'll be able to learn more about how DML Capital currently helps other business owners, like yourself, diversify their investments and grow their wealth. Take our short quiz to see if you're ready to take the next steps toward your financial success. 